1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Jamie. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Katie's. It'd be great to keep that passage of the Bible uh, close at hand. Um, but my family is uh, going on two weeks holiday starting tomorrow. Uh, we're pretty excited. Uh, and something that Aisha and I have been doing on holidays lately is picking like a theme of movies for the, for the trip. Um, so, you know, we did Fast and Furious one holidays, we've done Disney Pixar. Um, but the last uh, couple of holidays, we went with the theme of Tom Cruise. Uh, now, there's a lot of content to explore there. Um, and I hear there's a new Tom Cruise movie that I need to see. Apparently, that's a thing at the moment. Um, but, yeah, in the last year or so, we've gone back through all the Mission Impossibles, the Jack Reachers. Uh, and had a great old time. I couldn't help, though, but notice a theme in those movies other than Tom Cruise. 
Uh, and I think it's this. In all of those movies, I think it's the world against Tom Cruise. And, you know, early on you see his character getting unfairly accused or in some kind of conspiracy. And you see him getting roughed up by the bad guys that everyone else thinks are good guys. And it makes you mad. But by the end, without fail, Tom Cruise is absolutely smashing those bad guys. And it's so satisfying to see the misjudged Tom getting his own back and more and doing all his own stunts in the process. But as I found myself, you know, sitting on the couch thinking, yeah, hit him in the face again, it struck me like that's an unsettling thought to have. (laughs) It made me aware of that very human desire for revenge. You know, in our broken world, we hunger for justice, right? We want to see wrongs put right, and we want to see evil being shown for what it is. Revenge goes a bit further than that. Uh, Revenge is me saying, I want to put those wrongs right. And I I want to be the one to see evil shown for what it is. And I'm going to take out some of my pent-up anger and frustration out in the process uh, so that I can go from being oppressed to oppressor. And so outside of kind of the fantasy world of movies, revenge so often leads to regret. Uh, It can take the form of ugly acts of violence. But more subtly, uh, I think revenge often looks like using my words to make others pay or feeling powerless in one area and so doing what I can to feel powerful in another. The bold claim of the Bible is that there is another storyline Uh, a truer story that makes better sense of that hunger for justice. And it's not the story of a misunderstood hero getting his own back and more against the cruel world, uh, but of a cross on which the Son of God cried, Father, forgive them. Our loving creator who has been so misunderstood, mocked, treated as though he didn't exist, came in the flesh to dish out not revenge, but redemption. And countless believers through the millennia have found deep peace in that reality. Because, you know, the revenge story makes for an exciting movie. But if we applied that kind of across the board in life, uh, we'd be in a world of pain, right? You know, fighting to prove ourselves to be in the right while also being fought, because who of us is exempt from letting others down? But to know that my failures have been forgiven at the cross, to know that the God of the universe will never hold them against me, that frees me to live. So how does that impact this whole area of mistreatment and misunderstanding? That's what Peter's first readers found themselves asking. They were forgiven sinners, precious to God, with a beautiful future ahead of them. But at the same time, a strange minority meeting in little churches dotted around the brutal empire of Rome. 
They knew what it was like to lose their place in social circles and especially to be spoken about in unkind and often unfair ways. And since chapter 2, verse 11, Peter's been unpacking the strategy for living for God's glory in that context, living with integrity and showing God's grace to others so that even though they're spoken against, in the end, many of the naysayers will be won over and find hope in Jesus too. Uh, Peter's just unpacked what that looks like in society, in the workplace and the home. Um, And just as a side note, um, we delved into some um, significant stuff about marriages last week in the passage, uh, and it'll be worth catching up on the podcast of last week's talk and Q&A session if you missed it. But today, Peter turns the strategy now to how do we respond to mistreatment particularly in how we use our words. And he invites us into a life of redemption, not revenge, of responding to trouble from a place of security. So let's jump into point one on your outlines. Why seek peace when the world wants trouble? To answer that question, Peter invites us back to about 1,000 years BC. Picture a lone Israelite, on foreign soil, hauled before the king for questioning. He's a pitiful sight. He's foaming at the mouth, saliva drenching his dirty beard, not a coherent word to say, and he's sent away and dismissed as a harmless nobody. That nobody uh, was none other than David, Israel's greatest king. That happened to him. 1 Samuel 22 records that after he triumphed over Goliath, after he was anointed as God's chosen king of Israel, he was chased out of town by Israel's first king, Saul, uh, who was so threatened by this young shepherd that he tried to take him out. Everyone knew that David was stronger, and David had plenty of chances to get even with Saul, But instead, he chose this life of shame, which included this episode of kind of like pretending to be out of his mind on foreign soil to escape. Why? David believed that it was God's job to put things right and not his. And so he was secure enough to let people think unfairly of him knowing that God will prove him right in the end, which is exactly what happened. Now, back to Peter. Peter quotes from the song David wrote after that episode. Psalm 34 is a song not of indignant rage, but of praise to God for what happened in that kind of saliva-drenched beard episode. Let's hear the bit Peter quotes from verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. David deliberately pursued peace 
with King Saul and the many others who did evil against him, much to his own cost. And in that sense, he paved the way for his greater son, Jesus. He held his tongue from striking back because he knew that no matter what others thought of him, God's eye was on his chosen king. It wasn't the world against David because God was with him, listening to his prayers. And he knew that those who were railing against him would one day know the justice of the Lord, and so he didn't take vengeance into his own hands. So too for believers today, says Peter. And perhaps surprisingly, it starts at church. Have a look at verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Trying to understand what the other person might be feeling. Wanting what's best for the other. Our church family is the training ground for that kind of pursuit of peace. I think first because that's part of how we show our friends and neighbours that knowing the King, Jesus, really changes lives. But second, I think Peter calls us to practice those attitudes at church first because believers are forgiven sinners and we're prone to hurting each other. Peter is telling us making God's goodness known to a hostile world is going to be hard enough. Let's not make it harder for each other. Then, when trouble comes from outside, we're ready for verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. We'll be ready to... Look silly for being the only Christian in that social group or workplace, and just to wear that. Why seek peace when the world wants trouble? Because God is calling the world to find redemption in Jesus. He'll put things right in the end, but for now, it's our job to show God's kindness to the world in real life. This is an observation that I have stolen from our senior pastor, Matt, and I'm going to tell it as if it's my own because it rings true of my life too. When I finished school and uni, um, I had two great circles of friends. Uh, Many from both are still great friends of mine today. I had my friends from high school who were mostly um, not believers and my friends from church and the Christian group at uni who were mostly Christians. Um, As my 20s went on, the same kinds of issues hit both circles. Uh, People dated and broke up. Uh, Some got married. People sometimes said unkind things about each other. Um, Some had kids. Some of those kids broke the other kids' stuff. Um, Two groups of normal human beings, okay? Um, For my high school friends... That became the story of the group's slow unravelling. Yet for my Christian friends, many of those relationships are still going pretty strong. 
And I think the big difference is not that the Christians didn't sin. The difference seems to be that they were learning to show God's grace to each other, uh, to not hold grudges when others stuffed up, and to go and have the hard conversations so that we can make up, learning to pursue peace. What would it look like if we really believed that repaying evil with kindness was part of the road to our eternal good and to actually loving life? When somebody, whether they're a fellow believer or not, is making life tricky for me, uh, it can feel like the the metaphorical drool is running down my metaphorical beard, uh, if you know what I mean. And all I want to do is wipe it off and show that I am in the right. But when I remember that God's eye is on me and he cares for me, I can swallow my pride and instead pray for that person by name for their good. And I've been challenged this week, do I actually do that? That's my speech towards God. What about towards others? What does it mean to not repay insult with insult? I think for me, I tend not to snap back in the moment. That's partly just how I'm wired. Um, The challenge is then, how do I speak after the moment? Uh, Perhaps when the person isn't in front of me, I need to watch repaying insult with insult behind their backs and, you know, as I go and debrief with somebody else. What would it look like? I don't know if you can resonate with that. What would it look like to speak as positively as I can possibly do about those who disappoint or insult me? There's some of the questions I've been asking. Um, How about for you? Imagine if that kind of security defined our speech here at church. Too many people have left churches because of gossip or because of politics and infighting. Imagine if God's compassion towards us soaked so deeply here that people who visit are struck by our humility and our sympathy. Imagine if in someone's first 12 months as part of this church, they have a moment like this where they say, I let somebody down and they forgave me. I was grumpy. I turned up to church really discouraged and someone was sympathetic. And can I just say that I'm super thankful to be a part of a church that gets and values this. Um, One of the reasons I love working with Matt is that he has set, I think, a remarkable culture of speaking sympathetically about the various frustrations that do come with church life. Um, And as his role changes this year, can I just say, I really don't want us to lose that. Um, Too many churches suffer from grumbling about each other. Um, I'm sure there will be frustrations, but let's follow Matt's lead by letting the gentle and compassionate Jesus rule our tongues. Now, that's a beautiful ideal, um, but we find in point two that it doesn't always lead to um, being appreciated. Um, Why respond with respect when you're slandered? Um, Verse 13 puts it like this. 
Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? That would be absurd. But it happens, doesn't it? Uh, And so there's verse 14. But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. It's absurd, but it happens. So how should we respond? Well, you see in your Bible footnotes that um, the second part of that verse is a quote from Isaiah 8. And Peter gives us yet another example of a believer who was outnumbered and snubbed in their day. Um, In Isaiah 8, God encouraged Isaiah, don't be like your fellow Israelites. They're all freaking out about the enemy armies marching towards Jerusalem. They're looking for political allies instead of asking what God has said about the situation. But you, Isaiah, don't fear what they fear. You know that I've promised to save anyone who trusts in me. So set the Lord apart as holy in your heart. It's him you should fear. You'll notice verse 15 of our passage picks up the same language. But with the added clarity that it's Jesus who is that holy Lord who alone deserves our fear. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In Peter's context, it's not the threat of invading armies that we might fear more than God. It's the verbal attacks of those who want to discredit the gospel And let's be honest, the the thought of someone tearing me to shreds with their words because I'm a Christian is scary. Um, The phrase that's translated, give an answer to those who ask, um, comes from the language of the courtroom, where an accused person is called to give a defense for their behavior. The assumption of verse 15 is that Christians will be challenged about their faith, which will lead to opportunities to then speak about their hope. And weirdly, it's a non-defensive kind of defense, if you know what I mean. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Because the risen Jesus is Lord of your heart, not the person who speaks against you. Yes, you're on the back foot in a sense, but you're free to give a calm defense because you've actually got nothing to prove. So we're ready, not in a fighting pose. I don't really know how to do one of those, but imagine a fighting pose. (laughs) But with arms outstretched, Keen to share something precious. So what are those moments for you where you get a chance to respond, maybe a little bit on the back foot, to someone about your hope? Um, Here's a moment that I wish went a bit better. Um, I was at a gig with a friend and he introduced me to um, two women who were friends of his. After a bit of friendly chit-chat, it came up that I was a part of a church. And they said, oh, well, you'd probably hate us, you know, because we're a couple. And I was kind of on the back foot, and I tried to say something about, oh, not hating them, and, you know, no, I don't hate you. 
Um, but in hindsight, I wish that I took a breath and remembered that just to stay calm, to open up the conversation a little bit more, maybe to find out a little bit more about what they meant by that, even though I was a bit scared that that might give them a chance to say more unfair things about me as a Christian. Because then I could have understood a bit more and maybe had just a little bit of license to say something about what I do believe. What are those moments for you that you want to be ready for next time they come around? I don't know about you, but the more insecure I feel about something, the more defensive fighter pose that I am about it. You know, take um, my physical fitness, okay? If you said to me, Jamie, I saw you running uh, down Springbank Road the other day, and, oh man, you looked unfit, (laughs) which would be fair. Um, But because that's a point of insecurity for me, I'm much more likely to come back with, well, well, you know, I've just had COVID, and, uh, you know, the mornings have been quite cold, and you don't know how many other things I'm working on, okay? Right? But because of the Lord we fear, we have every reason to be secure. He knows the worst of me, and he still wants to know me. He has bought me an eternal future that no one can take away. So I can live with a bit of drool on my beard and just talk about how good he is. I'll never forget um, watching the former Archbishop of Sydney, Peter Jensen, uh, when he appeared on that ABC show Q&A. I don't know if anyone remembers that, back in 2012. Boy, oh boy, he could barely get a word in. Uh, The others on the panel had a great time uh, calling him a dinosaur. Uh, He was accused of condoning domestic violence, uh, with the very thing he was trying to speak against. And what really struck me, though, was the way he responded. Uh, He spoke warmly about Jesus when he got the chance. And when he was, you know, cut across and interrupted, he didn't yell louder. He actually showed curiosity and interest in the other's point of view. Gentleness and respect indeed. But I remember back, back in those days just uh, feeling like a loser when I saw all the mean blog posts that kind of circled around afterwards about him. You know, if that's how people see probably one of the kindest and most articulate Christians out there, but that's what Peter's saying. Yes, believers will be treated as losers, but when you look back on the tape of that conversation, do you want to be the one who was yelling back or the one who responded with gentleness and respect? Now, most of us probably won't be asked to appear on Q&A, and I'm quite happy about that personally. Um, but what does it look like for us practically, for you and I today, especially if you don't feel super well qualified as an evangelist. I think the first thing to say is, Peter is not asking us to marshal all the knockdown answers. Uh, He's asking you to talk about the hope that is in you. And that's something you don't need to be a scholar to talk about. Because in the end, uh, this isn't a verbal equivalent of the end of a Jack Reacher film. 
where we smash every objection and then some. This is holding out the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. When it comes to speaking about that hope, something I found really practical and beneficial a few years back was hearing from an older, wiser Christian saying that um, sharing your hope doesn't just have to be telling the story of how I became a Christian. That can be really good, but sometimes it's even better to talk about why I'm a Christian because that gets right to the hope part. So, you know, lots of sentences starting with phrases like, I'm convinced that, dot, dot, dot. I found that really helpful. Um, And I got a chance to try it out recently uh, with an old friend. Uh, We caught up for a drink after ages, and he was just sharing with me that he was worried that I probably wouldn't like him anymore because I'm living such a conservative life these days, and he isn't. Now, he was being self-deprecating, um, but there was, a, there was a hint of the youth change there as well. It was a really good chance to talk about my hope and say, actually, I hope you know that the reason I'm a Christian is that I know that I'm not a good person. Um, the whole reason I keep getting out of bed and not freaking out about who I am and where I'm going is that I know that I'm loved and forgiven by God. What is it that you love about your hope in Jesus? I think this week might be a great chance just to spend some time reflecting, maybe even writing up a list of how your hope has changed your life so you're more ready to talk about it. And in that Remember Peter's challenge, trust that your gentle, unfazed defense will speak volumes. And that leads to point three. Christians can respond to unfair criticism from a place of security because Jesus wins. In fact, he already has. Uh, First, he has won the battle against my sin. Have a look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It's the opposite of self-righteousness. If you take Jesus at his word on this, your place with God is secure because Jesus, the only righteous person to ever walk this earth, chose to take all of our unrighteousness on himself and wear it like drool on the beard and deal with it forever on the cross in order to bring us to God forever. And that is as concrete and sure as his tomb was empty. Can I say, if if you're considering whether you'd want to be associated with Jesus today, that's God's invitation to you. Uh, In our world of anxiously trying to prove that I'm right, there is deep confidence to be found in Jesus. He knows the extent of our failures and sin. And he chose to suffer so that might not come between us and God. We can come to him as his precious children, no matter how smart or popular or good or bad you may or may not be. No matter how you've treated God in the past, this is what he offers you now. When you know that Jesus has won the battle with your sin, you can start to navigate the winds of 
being let down, being disappointed and spoken against. But it goes even further than that. I'm not just secure because Jesus has defeated my individual sin, but because he has won the battle with all evil. Let's read on from verse 19. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Uh, Now, lots of ink has been spilled over the question of, like, who did Jesus go and preach to? Um, An answer that I think makes good sense in the context is that the risen Jesus went and proclaimed his victory over the spiritual beings, perhaps angels, real beings who we don't routinely see today, who were complicit in the cosmic defiance of God that was going on leading up to the flood in Noah's day. Now, even if I'm wrong about that, and Jesus actually went and preached uh, to other imprisoned spirits, what is clear is that Jesus has won the battle against evil, and he has gone and declared that to both human beings and the unseen powers of this world. That's clear in verse 22, where we see Jesus is at God's right hand, ruling over angels, authorities, and powers. Which is why it's really appropriate that Peter brings up Noah at this point. Noah, he lived in a time when the world was shaking its fist against God, human beings and spiritual beings alike, trying to cut God out of the world he made. But God showed mercy to Noah and his household. One little group of believers, just eight souls in all, who took God at his word and started building an ark to escape the judgment to come. Imagine how ridiculous they would have looked. Building a boat with no water in sight. Uh, They would have needed a quiet resolve to keep building, even when everyone around them was telling them they were crazy. That's the kind of confidence we need. Christians look kind of silly in this world. It's tempting to feel like a loser and hide in a corner or to strike back. But we need to stand firm, knowing that God will save those who trust in him from the deluge of judgment to come. That's what baptism symbolizes. I bet Noah doesn't regret keeping the calm confidence that he had in the face of ridicule. We want the good of our world, but it's not our job to destroy all evil. That's Jesus. We just want as many people as possible to jump on the ark and be saved before the world finds out just what it means that the Lord's face is against those who do evil. Snubbed? Maybe. But absolutely safe and secure. What does it look like to be underrated but unfazed today? Is it holding back before posting that knockdown comment? Is it sleeping on that tersely worded email to your boss? Perhaps it's being willing to drop in people's estimation simply by being known as a Christian, trusting that you're gentle, 
and respectful response will speak volumes. For us as a church family, how can we go about creating a tone of calm as we respond to our increasingly secular culture? Uh, It's tempting to get angry and shake our heads, but remember, Jesus is not taken by surprise. Uh, He's already disarmed all the powers of evil and let them know about that. The question is not if, but how will he use this cultural moment to show the world that he is Lord of all? How will he use the gentle words of his church to put the naysayers to shame and bring more into the ark? We can be confident, no matter how apparently outnumbered, because the triumphant Jesus at God's right hand He's got his eye upon his people. He's listening to our prayers. So how about we pray now? Father, thank you for sending your son for our redemption and not for revenge. Please lead us deeper into the incredible security that gives us. Please make us ready to respond to mistreatment in a way that honours our risen Saviour. Amen.